This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Of my creation and creator, I was absolutely ignorant. But I knew I possessed no money, no friends, no kind of property. I was besides endued with a figure hideously deformed and loathsome. I was not even of the same nature as man. I was more agile than they and could consist upon a coarser diet. I bore the extremes of heat and cold with less injury to my frame. My stature far exceeded theirs. When I looked around, I saw and heard of none like me. Was I, then, a monster, a blot upon the earth, from which all men fled, and whom all men disowned? The poignant words of Dr. Frankenstein's monster in Mary Shelley's gothic horror masterpiece, Frankenstein. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. Is Mary Shelley the mother of science fiction? On this week's show, sociologist and researcher Suzanne Burden talks Almost Invincible, a biographical novel of Mary Shelley, and her painstaking journey to uncover the real woman behind Frankenstein. And Lynn Truss, the best-selling author of Eat, Shoots and Leaves, the zero-tolerance approach to punctuation and talk to the hand, the utter bloody rudeness of the world today, offers her opinions on the role of class and manners in British society and her lifelong love of Gothic literature. This is a show about intensity and longing, knowledge and craft, literary ambition and human agency. But first, a fictional tale of Mary Shelley's creative but tragically scarred life. In Almost Invincible, Suzanne Burden's biographical novel of Mary Shelley, readers are presented with an operatic life, a woman whose world was full of crisis and high-flown emotions, passions, jealousy, grief and hate. Almost Invincible is a compelling and intriguing fictional account of Mary Shelley and her unconventional relationship with Percy Bysshe Shelley. I have to say, reading about their creative partnership was fascinating. Mary Shelley began writing Frankenstein in a thunderstorm in 1814, when she was just 18. By then she'd been living for two years in a scandalous relationship with poet Percy Bysshe Shelley who was already married with children. Frankenstein, the novel, was conceived in a contest with him and Lord Byron to tell ghost stories. Suzanne Burden is an English sociologist and researcher living and working in Sydney, Australia. She became curious about Mary Shelley when she read about her fraught relationship with her stepsister. Then, as curiosity became years of extensive research involving travel to the UK, the US and across Europe, she glimpsed a Mary, who was a teenage rebel, a grieving mother, a determined author and a long-suffering lover of a man well ahead of his time. It made Suzanne want to tell her story. Well, earlier in the weekend, I gave Suzanne Burden a call at her home in Sydney, Australia. I asked Suzanne, would she describe Mary Shelley as one emotionally charged and intense woman? Let's take a listen. Oh, absolutely. The the intensity of of her life 
during the nine years that I write about, at least when she was with Shelley, was was incredible. Also afterwards, but you know that's 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 another story. But she was emotionally charged, really, partly because you know, her temperament was as a very strong woman, and that was unusual in the society of the day. Um, and she wasn't afraid to express herself, but also because of the um, the conditions under which she lived those nine years, especially having her stepsister Claire in her relationship the whole time, the, the silent, the, well, not, not so silent third. Claire was there the whole time um, challenging her and manipulating the, the, the relationship, the living arrangements with Shelley, because Claire was also in love with Shelley. So Claire was there. She was really um, poisoning the whole relationship, and Mary had to deal with that. And she also had to maintain, for Shelley, the facade of being this cool, calm, detached person, which she in fact wasn't. And there didn't seem to be a lot of sexual boundaries in the whole social context of her life. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. Um, Shelley was very much a 60s man. Uh, in my, my, he was a flower child, as far as I can see. In fact, when the Geldofs were in the um, news recently, I, I remember thinking that Shelley reminded me so much of Bob Geldof. He was, you know, he was radical. He wanted to save the world. He was wild in his appearance. He was charismatic. He was persuasive. Uh, he was very much that, that sort of person. And as far as Shelley was concerned, the, the flower child community would, would have been the perfect way of life. That's what he aspired to. In fact, when, when he um, persuaded Mary to elope and he was already married and already had a child, he assumed that his wife would be happy to come and live with them as well and that they would have this wonderful, comfortable little commune and that nobody would mind that he was with Mary now and that she would, you know, she would go along with it and mind the children. He thought that was wonderful. He had a sense of the community of philosophical minds, people who could all just live together happily with no sort of, yes, yeah, sexual boundaries. He also tried to get Mary to um, have a relationship with his best friend. Again, it very much, um, it was less than salacious, even though the, the, the circumstances were salacious. It was more in this sort of spirit of perfection. This is the way life should be. We should all live together beautifully. He was quite taken with a book called The Empire of the Nairs, which was a matriarchal society. And in fact, he was quite feminist in his views. And, and he just, that was just the way he was. And Mary wasn't really like that, even though she was brought up in a, in a family of, of people who were, uh, in the day, her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women. Her father wrote Political Justice, which was an anti-establishment track. So they were all fairly anti-establishment. But Mary, her innate nature, she was a Virgo. She was conservative. <laughs> um, and she... Um, sort of went along with it. She tried her best to be what, what Shelley wanted of her and she would have tried to have this relationship with Shelley's best friend if she, if she wasn't pregnant at the time and the child hadn't died and you know, put a kibosh on the whole thing. So it was, it was difficult for her and she also knew that there was Claire lurking in the background and that if she had this relationship with, with Hogg, Shelley's best friend, that Claire would also then probably have a relationship with Shelley which was something that she didn't want to happen. Now, you describe Suzanne, her life as operatic, that she had dramatic ups and downs. I'm wondering, within all those dramatic ups and downs, was she a religious person? Was she a spiritual person? I know that Shelley was an atheist. So I'm wondering, did any of his views, did they influence her in any way? Yes, she was certainly influenced by him. And I mean, that's one of the aspects of, of Frankenstein. I think that, you know, one of the things that have contributed to the way she wrote Frankenstein, the atheism, the, the sense of man as, as being able to take the place of God. But intrinsically, in her own nature, she wasn't as strongly atheist as Shelley was. Shelley was sent down from Oxford for writing a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism. And uh, whenever when they travelled through Europe, he would sign the registers as an atheist. It's enormous scandal in, in England of the day. He actually also lost custody of his children by 
by Harriet, his first wife, because of his moral turpitude. His, his atheism was seen as a dreadful thing. So it was a very strong influence on Mary in terms of the, the thinking while she was with him. But although she wasn't sort of actually religious, she, she wasn't anti-religious. She went to church a couple of times when they were in Italy and she, after Shelley died, she sort of went back to a slightly more spiritual life. But, but he was a very strong influence. Although he himself believed in a spiritual universe, he just didn't believe in organised religion, really. Um, you know, he saw it as very um, detrimental to society. Suzanne, from reading Almost Invincible, she comes across as somebody that was very superstitious. And do you think in some way that created a sort of a dysfunctional vibe, possibly, in their home life? I don't think the suspicion was part of it. It was really more of a binding thing. I mean, they would, they would sit together in the evenings and do what they called the Sorte's Vigilia, going through the volumes of Virgil, opening them up a page and sticking a pin in and taking it as a fortune-telling they were you know, very involved in the, the Gothic literature of the time. One of the things they were involved in, they read extremely widely, you know, everything from sort of Plutarch to Voltaire to Don Quixote. But um, the, the Gothic literature of the time was very prevalent. And I guess the other thing about the society of the time that was an influence on Mary, especially in her writing of Frankenstein, was the emphasis on science. And it was more science as magic in those times you know, the, the London was full of shows where people would produce what they called phantasmagoria, you know, shapes in the, in the dust, and they would show the properties of electricity and the new properties of gases. And it was done in quite credible circumstances. I mean, Humphrey Davy, who wrote the, the, the basic text on, on chemistry at the time, a very serious scientist, he was well known for the shows that he would give, and you know, ladies would flock to them because he was very charismatic. And there was um, galvanism, which influenced Mary's writing of Frankenstein as well. And, um, you know, that was something that Byron and Shelley were discussing. And just a few years before that, Galvini's nephew had taken the body of a murderer, taken it to the Royal College of Surgeons and demonstrated through electricity how he could reanimate it, which meant that he could make the eyes open and close. And that was very much part of the atmosphere. Shelley was, in spite of being a poet, he was fascinated by science. The whole of their dining room tables would be covered with vials and test tubes and experiments that he was doing. You know, it wasn't very endearing to landladies. When you think, though, Suzanne, that she was only, what, maybe 18 or 19, when she wrote Frankenstein, it's a, such a powerful book. It asks enormous moral questions, political questions and mm. she was relatively quite young. I know that she had lost a few children at this stage and she'd gone through tremendous grief and that probably accelerated her maturity. But when you think about it, it's a very mature book, certainly in its reasoning capacity. Absolutely. Yeah, there were all these things I think that contributed to Frankenstein. There was the fact of the of Shelley's atheism, there was the scientific the scientific aspect of it. There was the the influence of her parents, you know, there was they read Rousseau, they were very, quite infatuated with Rousseau, which was one of the reasons they went to Switzerland when they first eloped. Rousseau is sort of always credited as, as talking about the noble savage. Um, in fact, it wasn't quite what he said, but the, the sense of man being intrinsically good and perfect and really being corrupted by social institutions was also something that her father wrote about as well. So she had a lot of that in, that intensity, as I think we were saying earlier in her life, in terms of political reasoning. It was something that really contributed 
to the way she thinks. I know that when she was writing Frankenstein, you know, she was actively reading Humphrey Davy and also Milton and Paradise Lost. And that, that was all, all part of the, the way that the book was constructed. Also, after they left Geneva, having when she started the story in Geneva as a result of Byron's challenge on the lake there, and they went to Bath because... Claire had a baby by Byron and they had to go and hide her away in Bath while Claire had the baby. That was a, a really terrible time for her. There was Claire having her baby, there was the suicide of her half-sister Fanny, there was the supposed suicide of Shelley's wife. It was an incredibly intense time. And if you look at her journal, almost every day starts off with write. She just puts that word in write. And you can see just how much the writing really helped her to keep a grip on her sanity. So, you know, her life was very intense as well. So that sort of went into the writing, I think. So I suppose it was a release for her that she could go into this Absolutely. make-believe world, even how gruesome Frankenstein is. It's a, it's a gruesome story, it's a frightening story, but a very humane story in another way so it probably presented the light and shade for her in so many different ways yes absolutely i think she was able to you know to pour out a lot in there you know there's a passage in in frankenstein that talks about grief which i think really reflects her own grief with with fanny um that you know there there is the way that really i suppose any author does is you you draw on aspects of of one's own life in order to to create the 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 characters that you're you're making up in the book um so there, there was a lot a lot in there that was that was Mary. Um, in some ways, she is quite strong-minded as well because she does, in a sense, reject the the really strong atheism because it's it's a critique, in a way, of the atheist position, saying that you know, can man really take the position of God in terms of creation? But I guess about probably eighty percent of the critics after Frankenstein was published saw it as quite an impious book and were very critical of it for that reason. The public didn't seem to mind. <laughs> Where would you situate her, though, as uh, as one of the first writers of science fiction? How influential was she? Because this was a very maverick book. Yes, I think she was very much the first of its kind. Most of the books of the time that were sort of gothic and, and fantasist always ascribed spiritual causes. You know, they were always demons or devil-oriented. She She was the first book who wrote where her protagonist, the evil protagonist, wasn't like that. It was very much a man behaving in a bad way. So so it was it was a, a very first one of its kind in that way. So it was the first one with human agency and in that way it was the first science fiction story because you know science fiction generally really talks about how man is influencing his environment and how he's potentially changing it and that's how Mary's contribution really started. It kick started that whole that whole genre. And it's very relevant, Suzanne, because if we look at today, human cloning is it's paramount in, in terms of the political agenda on what science can and cannot do and the ethics and yes. morality around that. So she was very That's ahead of exactly her time. Right. Oh, she was. She and Shelley were very, both very much ahead of their time. Um, it, it, it's fascinating. I, that's one of the things that, that, that appealed to me when I started to write about her. I was absolutely gobsmacked by how, how modern their ideas were. In terms of your reading of Frankenstein, as a book, everyone picks up Frankenstein at some stage in their lives, a lot of people when they're very young. And I think that you possibly can read into it what the questions that you have in your head at that time. It's that type of a book, the way you dialogue with it or engage with it, isn't it? That you can pick it up yes. at different stages in your life and it can unfold in different ways. Absolutely, yes. It was it was certainly very unique. And it influenced a lot of you know subsequent, subsequent writers as well in all sorts of ways. I was just recently reading about... Um, 
Mary Jane Loudon, who I, I hadn't come across before, who wrote a book called The Mummy, was the first one of that genre as well. And she was influenced by Frankenstein. But I mean, it sounds that it was quite lurid. But in fact, she was enormously um, predictive in terms of the science fiction in that book, the, the things that she, she thought would happen. So, you know, it was, was very, very much an influence. And also the other thing about Frankenstein for Mary as a person, as an individual, was that it gave her an enormous amount of confidence. One of the things that appealed to Shelley about her when he met her when she was 16 and when they eloped and when he saw her as his soulmate um, was her extraordinary literary parentage. You know, he expected great things of her. She freely admits that. And really she was struggling to come up with something. And when she wrote Frankenstein, and Shelley was enormously encouraging, that really gave her confidence to go on and, and really make the rest of her life as a writer. So it, it had an enormous personal impact on her as well. I know writers like Muriel Sparks said she was one of the drivers in her own life in terms of creatively influencing her. But do you think in terms of the broad people that she met that she had a profound impact on? Or do you think that they focused in on her unbelievably sophisticated parentage? They did initially and, and she really never escaped from being the daughter of of Godwin, um, who was a little bit scandalous in his own right at the time. Some of the reviews of Frankenstein sort of talked about it being a, a very um, scandalous book, but not surprising being from the daughter of someone like Godwin. Although she published it anonymously, people did suspect who had written it. So yes, there was that about it. But really, the, the period that I wrote about in her life, they were very much part of a circle. They were part of a circle of writers. There was Lee Hunt when they were in England, and then when they went to... Um, Italy, you know, and there was Byron was there as well in the latter part. So it was, they were very much amongst a circle of people for whom writing and reading and studying, I mean, they called it studying, they were studying the whole time. They were reading classics. Mary was learning Greek. They were all the time really trying to improve themselves and to, well, Shelley certainly wanted to change the world. I mean, he talked about poets as being the you know, best legislators. Most of his poetry is very political. There are very few lyric poems when you actually look at the whole body of the work. And Mary was always trying to get him to write something a bit more commercial to make some money because his poems basically didn't make any money. I must say, I must compliment you. When I was reading the last few pages of Almost Invincible, how you write about the death of Shelley and its impact on Mary is profoundly oh, yes. beautiful. You write exquisitely on grief. But I'm wondering, this also is a, a novel of fiction. You've yes. used very much the, the framework of her life and their life together. But you have milked it a bit, creatively speaking. And I'm wondering, <laughs> for the more academically arty-farty types, they possibly will be a bit head-wrecked by it in one way, because you're adapting and improvising and improving and, and speculating. But in other ways, for the reader who maybe isn't in that frame, it can be a very rewarding experience. Yes, thanks. I, I, um, most of it is based very strongly on, on fact. I did four years of research and I went to a lot of the places involved and I very, very strongly relied on, on the factual aspects of it. What I did was I recreated what I feel was more the emotional truths and the dialogues and you know, some of the... joined the dots to a large extent, I think. There were some mysteries which I speculated on. There was a mystery of the generally known as the Neapolitan child, the, the, the child that was born in Italy that nobody truly knows the parentage of. There was the mystery of exactly how Fanny died and exactly how Shelley's wife died. All those, those sort of little mysteries that nobody has really got the actual facts on, I, I speculated on those. But 
as you say, with the, for instance, with with that end, um, with the ending, with the um, the death of Shelley, I, I I tried to try and understand the emotional truths of it. I think that was what I was I was trying to get at most strongly. I didn't feel that anybody had really given Mary a true voice. I think that a lot of people um, who write her biographies, there's so much detail in there as well. There are so many other characters in it that you sort of feel like. It's crowded. You like you're looking for a lost child in St Pancras Station in the rush hour, or something like that. It, it's very hard to get to the to the really strong but also vulnerable young woman that she was. So I felt that by using fiction, I could I could really come to understand that. I mean, Peter Ackroyd actually once said that in biographies you can make things up. In novels, you're obliged to tell the truth, <laughs> um, the emotional truths. That are there. Mary, for instance, in, in biographies, if you read a biography, they'll also they'll often talk about um, how she was prone to depression and how this was probably a result of her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, who tried to commit suicide one time. And nobody seems to sort of make the connection between the fact that she lost three children. <laughs> <laughs> she was actually allowed to be a bit depressed, and this this is what people this is what happens to people when they lose children. And they talk about hers and Shelley's relationship being rocky towards the end. But when you think about it these days, people who lose children in families, eighty percent of those couples don't stay together. Um, Mary and Shelley stayed together. They stuck it out. They were very committed to each other. Whatever else happened to them, whatever Shelley's peccadilloes were, whatever losses they suffered, they, they, they stayed together. And I, I feel that she's given quite short shrift. You know, it's the same thing that where people say, oh, they lost lots of children in those days. So, you know, they expected it. And, and it simply isn't true. They were devastated. They were completely devastated by the loss of the children. You know, she, she reacted in a different way to Shelley. It's true. She was much more, as, as I understand, is quite common in, in that sort of situation. Women internalized it a lot more, whereas Shelley was a lot more inclined just to get on with things. But they stayed together and they still supported each other and they believed in each other through all their ups and downs. And I, I think that, you know, the loss of Shelley was an utter, utter devastation for her. You know, she, there's a little poem that she writes later on in her life, um, just after Shelley died, you know, talking about seeing him in her dreams. It was a very, very strong relationship. I think people don't give, that, give, it, give it enough credit. And that's one of the things that you can do in a novel is, is sort of tease out the truth of those relationships, I feel anyway. And when you look at the truth of their relationship and certainly the years they had together, one thing that really comes out is the perils of experimentation and the devastating consequences that taking those risks and experimenting that deeply and that bravely can actually have on your life. And then when you read Frankenstein and you look at the big questions and the big truths that are revealed in that novel, you realise in ways she was a very confessional and very, very open woman and possibly wasn't recognised for that in her lifetime. Yes, I mean, well, she wasn't really recognised too much. I mean, only her, only her intimates really knew that she was the author of Frankenstein for a long time. Part of the problem, of course, was for her that Shelley's father had virtually disowned him. He only gave him relatively small amounts of money at the time. And, and after Shelley died, then he sort of forbade her for, from uh, writing anything or, or writing anything about Shelley. So she had to get around it all the time. Either she was known as the author of Frankenstein when she wrote anything. Because a lot of uh, her post-Shelley life was, was spent in memorialising Shelley. She, if it wasn't for her, Shelley really wouldn't be known as the poet he is today. He came riding fast Like a phoenix out of fire flames He came 
black with a cross bearing my name He came bathing light in the splendor and glory I can't believe what the Lord has finally sent me Gorgeous music you're listening to there is from the stunning Norwegian singer-songwriter Annie Brun. She's got something special. Okay, we're going to stick with the theme of Gothic literature, but with a bit of a twist. And meet with best-selling author Lynn Truss. But first, let's take a bit of a break. So long day, so long night.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, if you want to get in contact with the show or you have a book or author you'd like to recommend, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you. Really lovely. So off you go. OK, let's now press on and meet with the opinionated, humorous and wonderfully edgy writer and broadcaster Lynn Truss, the woman who made punctuation hot. In a recent interview with the Sunday Independent, Lynn Trust revealed, My greatest regret is that I'm always conscious of class, which makes me an awkward customer socially. I'm really envious of people who don't think it's an issue or who have so much personal confidence that the issue disappears. Admirably honest and not what you would expect from such a household name. Lynn's latest project, Cat Out of Hell, is a gothic comic novella full of surprises, imagination and supernatural twists. And it features a remarkably observant and articulate cat. Yes, a talking cat. Well, Lynn flew into Dublin as a guest of the Bram Stoker Festival and I had the pleasure of meeting up with her for coffee and chats following her terrific reading with novelist Joanna Briscoe at Dublin's bustling Beckett Theatre. It was noisy, jam-packed and great, great fun. I'm Lynn Truss. I'm a writer. I've recently written my first gothic novel called Cat Out of Hell, but I'm best known for writing a book called Eat Shoots and Leaves, which was about punctuation, which came out about 10 years ago. Lynn, can I ask you a dirty question about (laughs) class? How important is class and how obsessed are we about class? Oh, well, I think in the UK we're very obsessed with class. I personally am very, very aware of it. I'm very self-conscious. I come from a working class background. So I'm one of those people who came through the education system, bettered myself and so on, but I still feel terribly looked down on by many, many people. So I'm I'm ultra-sensitive to class myself. One of the things that, as a comedy writer, which I do quite a lot of, it's something that I can't stand if comedy is about class difference. I think I find that very uh, unhelpful. (laughs) So I do write working class characters, but I don't deal much in snobbery because I think it's just awful. Now, you've just given a very successful talk at the Bram Stoker Festival and it's based on your new book. Can you tell me about it? Well, yes, it's for the Hammer. I was with Joanna Briscoe, who is another author, who was asked by the Hammer imprint to write a novella, a gothic novella. And I think it's a lovely, lovely idea and I leapt at the chance, to be honest. I like to try different things. I like to explain... For me, writing is all about craft and being aware of different rules and so on. And in writing a comic gothic (laughs) novella, it was all about controlling the material and I loved it. I found it a real great challenge. And people have said that the book is scary, but people have also found it funny. And it's very interesting how that sort of the different proportions shift from person to person. One person will find it mostly scary, a little bit funny. Other people will find it incredibly funny, a tiny bit scary. And some find it only funny and not scary at all. Or the opposite. So it's it's very, very interesting to see how it's, how it's perceived. And my book is called Cat Out of Hell, and it concerns a talking cat called Roger, who we believe from the beginning is, is a very evil cat. But obviously things are more interesting and complex than that as, as things go, go on. This is the entire problem with writing a gothic comic novel about talking cats, I've discovered, is that actually you just can't describe it to anybody without giving it all away. And I actually had to search very hard in the book to even find a piece to read that I felt I could read without ruining it for, for people. I suppose I'm being a bit precious about it, and maybe it's better to give things away so that people have got a 
taste of it. But I have, up to now, been very cagey about it because I just didn't want to ruin it for the person turning the page. But the main thing I've always said about it, and I like describing, is the structure of the book because I know quite a lot of old Gothic novels. I don't know many modern horror, but I have read lots of Gothic stuff, including Bram Stoker, of course. And Dracula is made up of lots of different narratives. Mm. And so I knew from the start what would make it work for me, anyway, would be that at the beginning we have a narrator who receives a folder of documents. There are different, you know, computer documents. So, you know, a couple are written documents. There are some audio files. There are some photographs. And he doesn't know what any of this means until he starts to listen to them and to read them and to describe the pictures and to look at the pictures. And so we go into a mystery. And I find that very compelling as a way to start because I think as the reader... If someone is describing what he's listening to, if someone is describing what he's looking at, you get drawn in. And because you're dealing with something so preposterous as a talking cat called Roger, you need to get over that as quickly as possible and have a narrator between you and that phenomenon saying, this is implausible, it's impossible, and yet I'm listening to a cat talking to a man. So I love doing that. That that sort of set it up for me. And he's a very philosophical cat. (laughs) He's a very well-read cat. The thing is, he was born in 1927, so he's had a long time to do reading. My favourite thing, I think, is when he describes in the 1930s how he and another cat called the Captain actually travelled. They did a sort of grand tour, and they stowed away on boats, and they, under Aegean skies read poetry to each other and so on. So he's, um, he's extremely well read. The sort of model for it, for that stuff, was obviously Interview with a Vampire, which is one of the few modern Gothic novels I have read. And I always loved that. I love the idea of these, these characters going off, invisible to the rest of the world, and just soaking up culture. And you mentioned there that readers will have to get over the fact that the narrator <laughs> is a cat. But what about the reader who cannot stand cats? Well, I think they'll find there's much to justify their point of view in the book. I mean, one of the things that um, I loved doing in it was, and I'm sure lots of people have played with this before, but we know that there are evolutionary reasons why cats do certain things, why they purr, why they swish their tails, why they claw in your lap and all those sorts of things. And, of course, because these are ancient cats that know the whole history of cats, yes, so they do tell you a lot more about why cats purr and hiss and and look at you as if they want you to die and claw in your lap. But you obviously have cats down as a lot shrewder than maybe some people who maybe dislike cats have them as you see them as a very not quite manipulating but certainly very very observant oh yeah i think they're very intelligent and and shrewd i mean mainly of course all animals really are self-serving they're only really interested in you know their own survival eating Mm. making sure that they're they win any fight and so on we superimpose all kinds of things onto that onto that behavior i think until recently people thought that dogs sniffing the side of the road were were actually sort of interested in grass or something you know and we now know, of course, they're sniffing other other dogs' wee and they want to wee on top of it themselves, you know. And we probably used to think that um, when they barked at things, they were being aggressive and we now know that they're frightened. So it takes a while for, for us to learn what the behaviour what the behaviour means. I suppose I, when I had my cats, I had two cats like, for 20 years and they were, they were lovely. I mean, I really liked them. And, you know, you can't help 
thinking about them in human terms to a certain extent I know it's bad but you do and I remember answering a sort of questionnaire about if your cats could read what magazines would they read and I thought you know well I think the girl cat would read the bunty you know and I think the boy cat would read what car you know and you just sort of think you know you don't know their personalities so well that you can answer those sorts of questions Mm. about them so I I, I feel as though we do know animals or we impose on animals as all these anthropomorphic things and obviously it can get out of hand mm. and maybe in this book it has a bit got out of hand. You wrote a very interesting book on manners mm-hmm. called Talk to the Hand. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about it? Because at the time there was lots of nasty articles mm. criticising you for being too grumpy, mm. too serious, <laughs> a bit mean and mm. a bit hard on people. Well, it's a funny book actually yeah. but it is grumpy of course but it's, it's not actually about people's manners. It's mm. about rudeness as mm. a sort of a general phenomenon in of modern life you know I think that when you phone up a company and you get an automated switchboard that's quite rude and so it was all about that kind of how we are sort of having to learn to live with lack of contact with other people understanding us no one is reaching out everyone is saying talk to the hand so I thought it was quite a valuable thing valuable thing to analyse at the time obviously yeah there were things of people skateboarding on pavements and all that sort of thing because that is part of it people a lot of people do feel very entitled to possess space public space and make it private space we all do it with our phones everyone who answers a phone in a public space is suddenly has suddenly changed the space to private space and I found that really really interesting so was told great stories when I was on the road with the book as it were of um, someone in America told me about station platform and one of the New York suburbs and everyone is snowing People are standing, crowded under a, a, bus, a sort of shelter on the station platform. And this woman's phone goes and she answers it. And she looks around and says, can I have some privacy here? And I just think, you know, that is a bit crazy. And people, obviously, in cinemas, talking, and you know. So, yeah, I mean, but I don't think I was alone in noticing or being frustrated by any of those things. I do think that people who don't ever register these things I can't quite imagine their minds I can't quite imagine anyone who doesn't notice that people are are disrupting um, what should be private space but at the same time I was very self-critical as well about all those things, about all those things, about thinking, well, how long have we felt entitled to this private space? We're not Probably not for that long. If you look back at footage of the sort of 1930s beaches or something, you see thousands and millions and millions of people, people playing gramophones by the side of a river or something. You think, well, that must have been very annoying to everybody else, or perhaps it was perfectly all right. So I didn't, I didn't just attack at all but I think I had been very successful with Eat Shoots and Leaves and I I do feel that um, if people were a bit grumpy about that then Mm. they would be ready to have a go Can I ask you about your book Tennyson's Gift? Mm. You present a range of very interesting Victorian personalities. Well, I wrote it in the 90s. It's quite a long time ago now, and it is still... I think it still is my favourite book. I think it came off very well. I wrote it on the Isle of Wight. It's set on the Isle of Wight, on the south coast of the UK, and it's set in 1864. I had started researching Tennyson and Julia Margaret Cameron, the photographer. I really loved her photographs, and I thought there was a story behind the photographs, really, because she would use real people, obviously, to pose and, and 
to represent classical figures, um, biblical figures, you know, just abstract nouns, you know, hope or something. So she used all these children and all her neighbours and famously the porter from Yarmouth who had to play <laughs> King Arthur in a number of photographs. And she was devoted to Tennyson. And I thought, oh, there's a really interesting story there. I didn't know it was going to be a comic novel. And then when I started to research both of them, I realised there was an enormous amount of humour around them. You know, she was a very bossy woman, Mrs Cameron, and people said, you know, farce attended to her wherever she was, really, because she was madly generous to people. She was always bossing everybody about to be in photographs and so on. So I started researching all the other people as well who were in Freshwater at the same time. There was the artist G.F. Watts, um, who is actually having a bit of a revival now. I think people are beginning to see. And he was married at the time to Ellen Terry, who became, of course, a very famous actress later on. She was young when he married her. And so I had all this coming together and reading about all these people. And then I read Lewis Carroll's diaries, and he was there. He was. He actually went to the Isle of Wight at the end of July in 1864 to see Tennyson. So I suddenly felt that's when it should all work because through the eyes of Lewis Carroll, he had written Alice in Wonderland by then, but it wasn't published, no one would know it. And so I suddenly saw it as an Alice in Wonderland-y sort of place with people who behaved in quite mad and, and exaggerated ways. Also, it's a very... Because of the art that I was looking at the photographs and G.F. Watts art and the art of the period with so many all the language of flowers and all that sort of thing it became very sort of summery and beautiful because there were sort of you know just lovely gardens and so on so altogether it's got a sort of farcical plot but it's just a week that I invent for all these people and Lewis Carroll seems to have had a very extraordinary life a very difficult life and there's some very questionable stuff in his background. He certainly seems to have been a rather odd man. Do you think that's fair to say? Well, he was only a sort of solitary sort of person, mm. I think. And like most Victorians, he did everything to an enormous degree. You know, he went to the theatre sort of 300 times a year or something, mm. you know. He took hundreds of photographs. Their energy is always really extraordinary when you look at it. And that period, the 1860s, is such an energetic period. I remember reading somewhere, it's like the 1960s, you know, that's all you have to think. Mm. It was just exploding. Everything was going on. And the railways were taking everybody away. That was another thing Lewis Carroll loved was the railways. Obviously there's a whole question about him and little girls because he did take pictures of little girls. Well so did Mrs Cameron take pictures of little girls with no clothes on. It was it was a sort of a sort of theme of the day that, that innocence was represented by little girls with no clothes mm. on. But who knows you know the relevant bits of diary are missing. If only they hadn't been destroyed we'd know one way or another. But his his sisters I think destroyed some, some stuff. My feeling about the, oh it's just a theory, but my feeling about the Alice thing. The thing that that I've discovered about Dodgson, Lewis Carroll, was how much he stood on ceremony. He was a very, very correct and upright kind of person. And he couldn't stand for his sort of status to be questioned in any way. And I think in terms of being in love with uh, Alice, for example, you know, I just think it's completely out of the question. And if anybody had insulted him, he would have cut off all connection with them rather than the other way around. So I think there's a lot more to it. But I'm wondering, Lynn, do you think in the case of Lewis Carroll that possibly it took such a tremendously manic and obsessive energy to produce such a sublime book? 
Oh, I think so. And I think it's so odd. I know people who don't mm. like Alice in Wonderland. Mm. I can't understand that. I know that it's troubling mm. to people, but it mm. is so witty. It's so witty. It's such a clever thing, and it is disturbing. Of course mm. it's disturbing, because it has that sort of logic of dream. But a lot of it is so playful about the sorts of things that Victorian children knew about. It's their poems that he parodies. It's the poems they had to learn. At the... So it was very subversive at the time. Mm. Children's books were all teaching them to be moral young people, teaching them all the bad things that will happen to them if they do anything wrong. And Alice in Wonderland was so playful. So if someone wears armour, it's going to be made up of sort of household objects that a child would know and all that sort of thing. I quote from it all the time, really. Recently, my dog, I was having some work done in my garden, and every time he went into the garden, the gardener would open the door and lift him over onto the... And I kept thinking of the line in Alice Through the Looking Class, watch out for the volcano, you know, because he wouldn't know why he was being... He was just arriving in the garden, you know, suddenly he was just being lifted on, taken there. And I just think that's really funny. And that was author and journalist Lynn Truss. Cat Out of Hell is published by Random House Hammer Imprint and retails at about €12. Now, before we go, some good news for you. The good people at Books Ireland have a nice, handy little competition for us this week. The dynamic is fairly straightforward. All you need to do is answer this simple question. Which Irish town is the setting for Nora Webster, Colm Tobin's latest novel? The first email to talkingbooks at newstalk.ie wins a year's subscription to Books Ireland. So off you go. Best of luck. OK, before I go, I just want to say big thanks to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. Go easy, go light, and be well. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.